You're listening to Here Now Podcast, where we dive deep into faith, hearing loss, and lifestyle, and talk about all the things that you need to be equipped in this journey we call life. I'm your host, Sophia Labano, and this show is here for you to find encouragement in the everyday life that God created for you. Make sure to subscribe to never miss an episode. Thanks for your support. Now let's get into the show. everybody. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of Here Now Podcast. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Kevin Vose today to talk about his book, Aquinas on the Four Last Things. So Dr. Vose, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Sophia. Yeah, you're so welcome. So why don't you take a second to um, introduce yourself to the audience? Sure, sure. Yeah, my name is Kevin Vost and some of my, my background, I was a person who was born and raised a Catholic. In my late teens, I became very fond of philosophy and read some of the wrong kind became an atheist. It lasted for about 25 years. During that time period, I, I went to school, earned a doctorate in clinical psychology, got married, had, had two young boys. But about 25 years later, after I became an atheist, in my early 40s, through a series of events, I read the works of St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time. And he showed me that these, what I thought were unanswerable arguments of the atheist that drew me away from the faith, I found that he had answered them more than 700 years ago, borrowing on church uh, theologians and philosophers who lived long before him. Uh, So he'd answered these beautifully well. I had no idea, even though I was raised Catholic, but thanks be to God, you know, it it showed me the reasonable of the faith. So I was able to come back to Christ and the church. And that's been, boy, almost 17 years ago since that time. Uh, But as I did come back, I'll just mention my specialty area in psychology was memory memory improvement, memory training. And Thomas Aquinas himself is considered one of the key figures in the history of the development of memory aiding techniques. So I did a first Catholic book called Memorize the Faith, introducing people to his methods applied to Catholic materials like the Ten Commandments, the the Mysteries of the Rosary, the Virtues, the Vices, all the books of the Bible and that kind of thing. But anyway, since that time, that was since I started writing in 2004, I've done over 20 Catholic books now And all of them, in one way or another, have borrowed from the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. So it's always a joy for me to talk about any aspect of his writing. I mean, I am the kind of person that loves St. Thomas Aquinas. I've read briefly his Summa Theologica in high school, continuing into college. And it's just so jam-packed that you almost, you can't just comprehend one thing at a time. Like it takes years to understand it. So have you read, this is a personal question, have you read the Summa Theologica like in full? Yeah, yes, I have, because it took several years though. Early when I came back to the faith, I wanted to do a book that kind of summarized his Summa Theologica, but it took me years to prepare but I did come out with a book in 2014 called The One Minute Aquinas, which is kind of a 300-page summary of his multi-thousand-page summa. So to do that, I have to read the whole thing, you know, front to start. But in all the books, I normally, though, I normally dig into one particular part of his summa and then try to really drill deep. So that's what was done with this last book and his writings on the four last things. Yeah, I'm excited to, to dive into that. So why don't you kind of start by summarizing what are the four last things? Sure, the church has taught these for a century. The four last things are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. You know, and, and these are things we're all going to experience. At least we're all going to be, we're all going to die one day. We, we know that whether we're believers or not. Then the church teaches we were going to be judged. And we can get into this in more detail maybe later, but just in brief, there is a particular judgment 
right at the moment that we die that determines you know where our soul is going to go and then there'll be a final judgment a last judgment a general judgment when christ returns and that then our souls will be reunited with our bodies and we'll, we'll go where we will be residing forever in, in heaven or hell so very very important material and i will say it's in some ways it's the most important material there is because it regards the fate of our eternal life after our brief time here on earth i think it's something that's so kind of incomprehensible for a lot of people, this aspect of like life after death. And I was actually talking about it today um, with my parents and how the ancient Greeks used to believe, you know, they would weigh your souls and this is where you would go. And after reading like Dante and all of these ancient believers, it's really cool to kind of see how this belief has evolved, but it's stayed very consistent that there is something to look forward to after we die. It's not that's it. So what do Catholics believe about life after death? Yeah, well, well, uh, one thing is right when we die, there is this particular judgment where we're judged as the individual person that we are. And, this will, and, and also at this point, our soul will have separated from our body, though later at the final judgment, we'll ultimately be reunited. But we believe then that when we die, our soul is separated. And there's a judgment that determines where our soul is going to go. And according to church teaching, if we are mired in this grave, serious, mortal sin, if we die in a state where we basically willingly rejected God, rejected his grace, then our soul will, will go immediately to hell. Now, if we are blessed to die in such a state that we're in grace with God, we have no grave, mortal sins on our soul, and we also don't even have minor venial sins that we haven't confessed, that we haven't done penance for, then it's possible our souls will go immediately to heaven, which is where like all our canonized saints are. We recognize that their souls are in heaven. But there's another condition that, that you know, I don't know for sure, this may affect a, a huge number of us. And this is where we would die without mortal sin on our soul, but still with venial lesser sins that we haven't, what's called satisfied or done penance for, or possibly even mortal sins that we have confessed, we've been forgiven for them, but we've not yet done our penance, you know, satisfied them, so to speak, then our souls go to what's called purgatory. This is where they can be cleansed of this debt of sin. God has given us a way so our souls can be purified. Because we read in Revelation, nothing unpure will enter heaven. So God gives us this beautiful mechanism of purgatory to cleanse our souls in one day, then one day to attain heaven. So those are the three, you know, primary uh, destinations there. And St. Thomas, you know, people are often daunted by him because he does speak in deep philosophical, logical terminology. But sometimes he also gives nice, simple little analogies. And here's one that's for, for the state of our souls after death. He says that lighter than air will immediately rise, you know, kind of like a hot air balloon just will go up while heavier bodies will immediately fall unless some obstacle impedes their path. So he says, a soul that is free from all debt of sin will rise immediately to heaven. A soul that is mired in mortal sin will sink, you know, descend into hell. And he says, an obstacle that can prevent a soul free of mortal sin from rising to heaven is the debt of venial sin, for which the soul's flight must be delayed until the soul is first of all cleansed. So I like to think of like, you know, you see some movies, people are up in a hot air balloon and, oh, it, it's sinking, it's not rising. We need to get rid of this excess baggage. So in a sense, Thomas tells us in purgatory, what's holding us back from heaven is going to be purged 
uh, and burned away. So just a nice little example that, that I got from, from St. Thomas about the state of our souls right at the time of death. No, that's really cool. And yeah, that's such a great way to put it. And I, I think like, thank God for purgatory, because without it, we kind of just wouldn't have this choice. You know, you're either going to heaven and you have to spend the rest of your life making sure you do everything perfect. Or if you don't, you're going to hell. So can you compare that belief to those of other religions? And I know that's a very blanket, generalized statement, but say maybe Protestants or Buddhist religions, how do Catholics believe that they just have this more hopeful thing in life after death? Yeah, now Thomas says, you know, Thomas is writing in the 12th century, so a few centuries before the formal Reformation, you know, the break with the Protestants. But even in his time, whenever he writes about something, he tells you what people before him have said about it. And many of the views in Thomas's day, you know, mirror what we saw later in the Reformation. So Thomas actually addressed that kind of thing. But he said that anyone who would speak against purgatory, he said they're really speaking against the justice of God, you know, uh, and his love and his mercy. So, so if we die in, in sin, but it's not a grave serious sin, he still opens a path for us. There's still a way because he wants us to join him in heaven, to, to uh, you know, forsake life in heaven with God. We almost have to to choose it, to be obstinate in our sin. Uh, but those of us who, who do want heaven, but we're frail, we're weak, we have these sins. He gives us this mechanism to get there. So it's a very, very beautiful thing. In terms of other uh, religions on like what happens to the soul after death, and this is another reason I, I love Thomas, because you mentioned the Greek philosophers earlier, Plato on the state of the soul. Thomas knows all this, and, and he addresses this. And he knows like the idea of reincarnation, that we usually probably associate with Eastern religions, but the, the ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras had a similar view that our souls might go on into other animals. And Thomas there, in keeping with the teaching of the Catholic Church, he clearly explains that we are not just some immaterial soul trapped inside a body. God created us as in soul beings. We're, we're made to be a unity of body or soul. So like Plato would say, in a sense, our, our soul is trapped in the body and can't wait to get out or people who believe in reincarnation would think that our soul can go become inside a dog or an insect or something later on. And Thomas says, no, no, we are crafted uniquely as human beings, as this composite of body with an immortal soul, and we're destined to be reunited with our bodies someday. So just, just very, very nuanced reasoning there based on scripture, based on prior church teaching, and oftentimes Thomas bases it on the best of natural philosophy. For example, he, he compares and contrasts Plato's view of the soul with Aristotle's. Aristotle is the one who believed we are in soul, composite of body and soul. Uh, and the church teaches that, says the soul is the form of the body, just as Aristotle did. So Thomas weighs in all, the, all these things very, very respectfully and comes out with answers. And you're like, wow, that, that really makes sense. And then he also often you know, buttresses it with the specific uh, verses from scripture that show it's not just based on philosophical reasoning. It's also right there in print in, in through inspired words of God. I love how St. Thomas is very logical in a lot of his thinking. You know, he's got the argument for first movers and just all of these things that just logically make sense. And so, so that's why I personally love his teachings, because it can just be so applied to, to real life, of course, with the basis of scripture. So this is probably going to be a little bit of a difficult question to ask as well. But what about people who don't get baptized, whether they're children or adults, what happens to their bodies after they die and their souls? 
Yeah, yeah. And this is this is something, you know, in some of these issues, like the church is clearly defined or it's very clear in scripture. Some it's not, we're, we're not certain. So, so like for some of these questions, Thomas will even say, there are many opinions on this matter. And then Thomas being Thomas, he might list a dozen of those for you, you know, before he settles on the best one. But okay, in this state of like, what happens to a person who dies without baptism? We might often think of this, if we're within the church, we would think possibly of a, a newborn child who would die before baptism. And Thomas cites from a previous theologian from the East, St. John Damascene, that talked about different classes of baptized people. Some just outright refuse it. Now that they don't, they don't want it. Others, especially in, in the olden times, they might wait towards the end of their life because it was known that baptism erased all sins. So some people think, well, I'm going to try to get baptized right before I die, you know, to get to the stairway to heaven, the immediate stairway there. But he said others are not baptized through no fault of their own. Now, this is what we probably think of most often as the young children who've been unbaptized yet. And during Thomas's day, the 13th century, there was what was called the theory of limbo, a state or place called limbo. And this was the reasoning there. What happens to these children here? Now, some people said, oh, they suffer like in hell uh, because they, they aren't united in grace with God. And Thomas gives very reasons why he says, no, that, that's not the case. It is true that they have, they have not achieved baptism, so that you're not united in charity with God. You know, Christ told us, you know, we, we must you know, be born of water to be saved. He said, but though they bear the stain of original sin, they have no personal sin. They've not chosen sin. He said, so they would not suffer. So, so Thomas believed his best thoughts at the time were this state of limbo, where he said those children's souls would experience the highest attainable natural bliss by the fact that they're made as human beings, you know, made by God. He said they would be unable to experience the beatific vision and be united with God, lacking that grace. But he said that did not mean they would suffer, though. And interestingly, he cites another, well, he cites a, a Roman philosopher, Seneca, here. And he said, Seneca says a wise person is basically not upset by things that are impossible for them. He said, we don't walk around upset all day because we can't fly like a bird, you know, or we're not the emperor of the world. So he said the same to these children. They would be happy in their normal state. They would know they didn't lost heaven because of anything they did. They, it would just be impossible to them. So they would enjoy their natural happiness and awareness of God. But I, but I must jump to the present, though. Current church teaching, uh, and it's in our current catechism, basically it does not use the word limbo now. It is basically stating that, yes, it's clear in Scripture, the very the necessity, the importance of baptism. Uh, Christ made that clear. So we want to try to baptize, uh, make sure people are, are baptized, make sure infants are baptized. But he also said, that, you know, Christ showed his, uh, he wants us to be saved. He showed his love for children. He said, bring the children to me. So the current teaching is that, you know, we can hope and trust in God's mercy, that there might be a way, there might be a way for their salvation. And, and in an earlier part of this uh, the treatise on the four last things for Thomas, I love a line he quotes from St. Jerome when they're arguing some issue. And Jerome says to the people he's arguing against, wouldst thou then lay down the law, Todd? It's like, you know, we have to be careful when we tell God what he can and cannot do. So in terms of the state of these, uh, these unbaptized children, the church teaches us baptism if you can, but, but we must also trust in God's mercy that there might be of their salvation. I think for me, the coolest thing that I'm looking forward to is when I get to heaven and seeing all of these unsolved mysteries and answers just finally come to life. Like, hey, there are dogs in heaven or babies don't end up in purgatory. They go straight to heaven. 
And so <laughs> I think just having all of these like unsolved mysteries on earth is kind of like a cool way to just be like, hey, just keep moving. Go figure them out when you die, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, Another aspect of how, how could, you know, some people think, oh, heaven would be boring, you know? Well, I don't want to just play a harp all day and sing, sing hymns, you know? Yeah. <laughs> because like you said, all these mysteries, everything you've wondered about, you're going to know. And you're going to see it by looking upon the face of God. You're going to know all truth for him. So it's just going to be an, an unimaginably amazing, glorious thing. I'm excited. Well, I know this is like the whole memento mori thing, and it's not to sound morbid at all, but you're just, you know, as a Christian, as a Catholic, you just have so much hope for life after death. And so I feel like it just kind of keeps moving you along in your earthly life. But where is purgatory mentioned in the Bible, if at all? Yeah, it's mentioned in several places. One of the earliest is in the second book of uh, Maccabees. Now, this is a book that, that modern Protestants would consider apocryphal, or uh, not valid scripture. The Catholic Church actually, you know, laid out what is the canon of scripture for both testaments. They have also always included this among those those books. And there, Judas Maccabee, the Jewish uh, uh, leader, after uh, fighting against the Greek suppression at that time, when some soldiers had died, he, he advised his troops they were going to pray for these dead soldiers. They were going to pray and do atonement for them. And, and if they were already in hell or in heaven, your prayers aren't going to do anything. So so the, the teaching indicated that, that you can help people who have died by praying for them. It's carried on in different verses of the, uh, the New Testament. For example, we, we mentioned in Revelation that nothing unclean will enter heaven. And the, though the word purgatory is not in Scripture, we can't rule it out because, you know, the word Trinity is not in there either. Many of our fundamental concepts are not. But the concept of purgatory is there in many places. St. Paul talks about it in his first letter to the Corinthians, and he talks about uh, wood, stubble, and hay that will be shown in our works, and that the things will be tested by fire. So there's several different verses. Oh, yeah, First John 5, 16 to 17, he says, There is a sin which is mortal. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal. So he's, this is where our idea of venial sin comes from. He says you can pray for that. So people perhaps who died with venial sin, we can pray for them so that sin can be removed. And this whole idea of purgatory, you know, when you read about it in St. Thomas, in the Catechism, it really is a beautiful and amazing thing. And it also just really does show the justice of God, the mercy of God, and the power of his charity. Because one of the fundamental teachings is, you know, the church talks about the church militant, those of us who are still alive on earth, the church triumphant, those of us who've been raised to heaven, the saints, and also the church suffering, the souls that are now in purgatory. And we're taught that we, all three, we're all bound together by charity. So there are even actions that we, the currently living people, can do that will, will help those people suffering in purgatory. And one of the things we can do is pray to the saints in the church triumphant for their intercession with God to help us and to help those people in purgatory. So just really, really amazing and beautiful teaching that, that really shows just the, I'm just, it's just amazing what, what God does for, for those who choose to believe him and love him. It's like this aspect of like divine teamwork. You're always praying for somebody and you're always asking for somebody's intercession. And it's like, you're never doing it alone, which is so hopeful and so helpful for all of the people who are in purgatory and you need our prayers. And then this question, I guess, could be kind of stereotypical is, do our bodies glow when we become glorified after the resurrection? 
Uh, yes. Next question. No, I'll give you an <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah, thanks. No, let me start with St. Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 43. Yeah, four, it starts with 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. So from those four little statements that the resurrection body will be uh, imperishable, will be glorious, will be powerful, and will be spiritual, we get what are called the four key qualities of the resurrected body. One is impassibility. It's imperishable. Our bodies won't degenerate. And our bodies, our limbs will obey our, our, our reason. Another is this, this power is agility. We'll be able to move, you know, like I said, we're like run as fast as the flash. Our bodies will completely and immediately obey our commands. Another idea that they'll be spirit-like is called the gift of subtlety. Our bodies won't be just all thick and lumpy like our current bodies. We'll be able to even interpenetrate and move through things gracefully like a spirit, though we'll actually have a body. But now to get back to your question, that fourth, it's called the quality of clarity. And this is where we get this idea of the bodies will glow. Thomas calls clarity a radiant brilliance or a body that's beautiful, glowing, and lightsome. And he says, yes, in a sense, our bodies will glow. We think, well, how can a body glow? I think, well, I don't know where, how, what they call them where you live, but around here we call have these things we call lightning bugs. Oh, yeah. Maybe you call yeah. fireflies. You yeah. know? <laughs> they actually do generate their own light. There's also you know, these deep sea creatures that exhibit a phenomenon they call bioluminescence. Mm -hmm. You know, they're so far under that they get no sunlight but they can actually generate their own body light, their, their light from their own body tissues. Well, you know, biologists tell us actually all living beings, even ourselves, we actually do emit light even now because of the chemical reactions that go on in our bodies. But of course, it's so faint, we can't even begin to see it. But the church teaching is that when we die, it will be there, our glorified, our new perfected bodies will be glowing. They'll be radiant and beautiful for all to see. So yes, according to St. Paul, St. Thomas Aquinas, the teaching of the Catholic Church, our glorified bodies will glow. There'll really be something to see. That is really cool. I'm excited to see that. And I, like I said, think back to Dante um, and his Divine Comedy. And I read that, I think, last semester. And I was like, whoa, this is really cool. Especially, you know, when you got the entrance of Beatrice and have them actually get to heaven and everybody's just glowing and it's like their souls are just on fire. And I'm like, wow, like, I really want to see that. So <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. I'm all for it. <laughs> and the, um, other, the famous example, of course, is Christ at his transfiguration. Yes. Is his face shone like the sun. It's so cool. It's just so incomprehensible. Sometimes you just like, wow, I want to see that. Like, I want to see it in a movie, but that's like, it's life. It's life after death. Like I want to be able to experience that someday. Which kind of gets to the next question. What kind of rewards await us in heaven? Yeah, and here, you know, Thomas, you know, he, he's drilling through all the previous church teachings. So he goes into very various different categories of, of different kind of rewards. There'll be special rewards for people who are like virgins or martyrs or great teachers for different things that we've done in life. You know, Christ talks about different mansions. He says there's basically going to be different levels of beatitude, depending on how closely we bond ourselves with God in charity, our, our beatitude, our happiness will be even higher and higher, you know, levels. But the fundamental reward there for, for all who attain heaven is, you know, what's called the beatific vision. 
basically that we will look upon the face of God. And Thomas says, we'll see God in his essence. You know, he will give us this, this capacity. So when we see him, you know, we'll have these glorified, perfected bodies. We'll even have vision like we never had before. But even those eyes won't be able to see God as he is who is the spirit. But God will give us this grace to see him. And one way to think how amazing this is, Thomas writes about things that we see in, in this life on earth. Think of anything that like awes you. If you're looking at a mountain range or you're looking up at the stars at night and you've, you've learned how far away they are, and how many they are. I mean, it's amazing to think about. Or you look at something as cute and, and touching as a little a puppy dog or a little human baby, you know. Or you think of the amazing complexities of all the species of dogs or all the species of animals and plant life that exist. Well, Thomas says, every one of these created things in some small way reflects the goodness that's there all in one in God. So in heaven, when you look upon the face of God, you are seeing every single goodness you've ever seen or ever imagined, but the original source, you know, the goodness with a capital G. So just be unfathomable. And Thomas even writes too that, you know, the universe itself will be perfected. We'll see it with eyes like we've never, more powerful vision than we've ever seen before. And even now, scripture tells us in the book of wisdom that the beauty of things on earth, you know, reflects the beauty of their creator. So in heaven, we will see that connection like never before. So just a totally, totally awesome experience that we can't even really begin to comprehend on earth. But as you said, even to ponder it is just an, an amazing thing. Well, I mean, if you think about it, combine, you know, like you said, the sunset, the stars, the mountains, everything like that is just like one sliver. And it's almost like blinding if you were to look in the face of God and see all of those things at one time. Like, it's just so cool that I know I keep saying that, but it really is so unfathomable until you actually get to experience it for yourself. And so I'm glad that we have things like that on earth that can just reflect slivers of beauty, which I did talk about in another episode, I think back the end of January um, with Bill Dunaghy on learning the way of beauty and how Mm -hmm. things were just, you know, if you look at somebody, it's not necessarily looking at their physical beauty, but it's looking at their souls for the beauty that they were created in the image and likeness of God. And so I'm like, wow, it just puts this new perspective on the human race. And, you know, sometimes we're flawed. We have sins. And even if you look at somebody, they could be a terrible person, but they were made in the image and likeness of God. And so I think that's so like hopeful and inspirational. So Last question that I have, and this might not be able to be answered completely, is where can and what can we do to get to heaven? Ah, very, very excellent question there. To get to heaven, we want to die in a state of grace, united to God in charity. So we want to think about these four last things and live in such a way that we do, we we ask for, we pray to the saints, we pray to God, to the Blessed Mother to help us avoid sin. And when we fall into sin, we need to avail ourselves of the sacrifice. We need to, to go to confession. Then we need to receive Christ in the Eucharist. Thomas calls the Eucharist the sacrament of charity. So basically, we want to unite ourselves to God as much as possible, through uniting ourselves to the church, embracing its sacraments, and then living in the way that, that Christ taught us to live, by loving our neighbors as ourselves, by loving God above all, above all things. You know, if we can do that, if we can strive to do that, you know, even though we may spend some time suffering in purgatory, we can have a real hope of enjoying all those glorious things in heaven. The very virtue of hope itself is our trust, our hope that one day we will be there with God in heaven, and our recognition that he's given us all the tools that we need to get there if we cooperate with him. 
I think of the Sequila Christie um, reading that right now for my gospel morality class. And, you know, if you follow the Beatitudes, you follow the Ten Commandments, there you go. That's it. But, of course, there's all those other aspects. You know, you can't do things without having faith, of course, hope, charity, love, everything. So I'm really glad that there are resources like the sacraments that can help us kind of get past that flaw that we have in human life to be able to get to heaven. So, of course, to kind of wrap all of this up, where can people buy your book so we can hear more about your insights into St. Thomas Aquinas? Sure. Well, the book is by uh, Sophia Institute Press. That's a nice name, isn't it? Their website, sophiainstitute.com. You can also, if you have a local Catholic bookstore, they may have it or can probably get it. And it's also available, you know, through your typical uh, internet sites. My own website is drvost.com, just drvost.com. I don't sell them there, but if anyone would like to contact me, I do have a comment box there. Perfect. Do you have any social medias or anything that they can connect with you on too? I'm there on Facebook. I have a few things on YouTube, but I'm not particularly active other than Facebook. Thank you. All of those links will be in the show notes for everybody to check out. But Dr. Bose, thank you for coming on today. I was definitely very like intellectually into this conversation. This is something that I'm like really Mm -hmm. passionate about. So thank you for all of your insights. Well, you're most welcome. I appreciate your uh, questions. You really got me thinking. I'm glad. So my philosophy homework is coming in handy some days for this too. But thank you again for coming on the show. And thank you guys for tuning in to this week's episode of Here or Not Podcast. Have a wonderful week and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.